Who is God? This question emerges from the first chapter of the book of Exodus, a continuation of God's story that began in Genesis. God is not yet named, but he is still present, watching, and fulfilling his promises to a succeeding generation. Join us as we begin a new preaching series through Exodus called Only One God. This message preaches from Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 22. The title of this sermon, The Midwives Feared God. Welcome to the Southside Sermons Podcast. I am Christopher Campbell, pastor of Southside Baptist Church, located in Decatur, Alabama. This message you're about to hear is from God's Word and is offered to you with this prayer that God would give you eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to obey His Word. May your faith be strengthened in Jesus, and may you grow in your knowledge of Him. In this first chapter of Exodus, verse 17, God's Word says that the midwives feared God. This revelation grabs our attention because it is repeated again in verse 21. The midwives feared God. Two of the midwives are named, Shifra and Puah. Their naming is quite significant in this text for these names are included in this chapter with the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob given in the introductory verses. But beyond these, no one else is named. The king of Egypt is not named. God is also not named. But these two midwives, Shifra and Puah, are named as those who fear God. Already, Exodus is guiding us to a question it wants to answer, a question that we too should answer and must answer. Who is God? What is God's name? He is yet unnamed, but he is already feared by these two midwives. Who is he? Verse 8 introduces the rise of a new king over Egypt. History tells us that the kings of Egypt, the pharaohs, were viewed as divine beings. The kings of Egypt were seen as gods. We must consider this question. Could this new king of Egypt be God? However, verse 17 says, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. The midwives disobeyed the king of Egypt because, as Scripture tells us, the midwives feared someone else. As fearful as it might be to stand in the presence of Egypt's new king, and as worthy as this new king might be by virtue of his position and his authority of honor and reverence and obedience, the midwives feared someone else other than the king of Egypt. And because of this, 
they disobeyed the king of Egypt. The midwives feared God, which means, and don't miss this, the new king of Egypt is clearly not God. So who is God? God is someone else. God, whoever he is, is worthy of fear, reverence, and honor that exceeds that even the king of Egypt is owed. When a choice must be made between obeying the will of God and obeying the command of Egypt's king, it is God who these midwives obey because it is God that they fear. Exodus from the opening chapter draws us to the uniqueness of God who is above all gods. Exodus reveals how other people and idols compete for humanity's devotion and worship. There are many things that compete for our devotion and for our worship, but God stands above the competition as unique and holy and one. We must answer the question, who is God? The Hebrew midwives, by their refusal to obey the command of the king of Egypt out of fear for someone else known as God, reveals a clear answer. There is only one God, not two, not many, but one. Only one God is worthy of our total allegiance, worship, and obedience, and he is a present God dwelling in the midst of his people. Moses will later teach the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter six. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. And by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from the face of the earth. Church, do you believe there is only one God? And do you fear him? In this opening chapter of Exodus, aside from one reference in verse 21 to God giving the midwives families, God is not actively participating in this narrative yet. Instead, God is watching. We know this because later, Exodus chapter two, verse 25 will say, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. When God is not acting, it does not mean God is not aware of what is happening. Never equate God's inactivity with ignorance of a humankind. God sees and God knows. Exodus invites us to lift our eyes, to widen our gaze, and see beyond ourselves and our own stories by revealing to us what God sees through God's story. God sees four things in this text. I've summarized each of the four in a way to help us learn and remember as we begin to preach through this 
important book, and I encourage you to take notes as you're able. First, God sees successions. God sees successions. This comes from verses one through eight, the introduction. God sees successions of families and successions of kings. Now, we all have succeeded someone in our families. To succeed means to come after. None of us listening today came into existence from nothing. We all came after someone else. We all succeeded someone else, our fathers, our mothers, those who raised us. We all have inherited something from those who have gone before us. Many of us have children. Some of our children have had children, and some of our children's children have had children. God graciously allows us during our short lifespans to see successions, the carrying on of our names and our families after us. But what we see is just a mere glimpse of a whole. How much more does God see? I am the Alpha and the Omega, God says, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. God sees it all. God sees all successions, and God cares about all successions because God was the beginning, and all successions lead to an end, and God is that end. We are all a part of God's story, and if we don't care about what happens after us, if we don't care about what succeeds us, then we don't fear God as we should because all things are moving toward an end who is God. Exodus itself is a succession coming after Genesis. Exodus is not to be read in isolation, but it is God's story continued. The first word of verse one in the original Hebrew is the word and. Exodus begins with a word of continuation. Most modern translations leave off the word and because it makes for awkward English when starting a new book. If you're reading from the New American Standard Bible or the King James Version, your translation begins with the word now. That's one way of including that word that many leave untranslated, the word and in a way that makes it a little bit smoother in English. Here's a translation for you to see literally of the Hebrew. Exodus chapter one, verse one. And these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They each came with his family. Do you see the word and? Exodus is a continuation of God's story succeeding the book of Genesis. And this means, church, that the God of Genesis, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob is still involved in fulfilling the promises he made to those who succeed them in Exodus. God chose a people for himself and brought them down into Egypt 
And the story is now continuing in Egypt. The same God who brought his people into Egypt will bring them out of Egypt, but in his time. In Genesis, God had spoken this promise and prophecy to Abraham. Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and 14. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God had a plan for Abram and his family and God will see it through not all at once, but in successions over 400 years. Church, this requires trust in God. This requires patience. God's plan is not accomplished all at once, but over time. This is true as we consider our own lives in the story of God as well. We will get irritated, and frustrated if we do not remember that God sees successions. The promises of God are not realized all at once. The God of the present is still God in the future. Generations come and generations go, but as they do, God remains and God sees one to the next. God sees successions of Families, we see this beginning in verse one. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. But then look at verse six. Then Joseph died and all his brothers, and all that generation. Notice Joseph died, all his brothers died, all that generation died, done. But God was not done. Verse seven, succeeds. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. God remained and saw to it that his word to Abraham would be fulfilled from generation to generation, that Abraham would have more offspring than he could number. God sees successions of families. God also sees successions of kings. Exodus chapter one, verse eight, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. God's word teaches us as Christians to submit to governing authorities because God sees kings and kingdoms change and is aware and even involved in those successions. Nothing happens without God. Kings will change. Kingdoms will change. There is only one kingdom that is eternal. And it is that kingdom where our Lord Jesus Christ is king. Exodus makes a point in verse eight to say that with succeeding generations in the family of Abraham, 
was also succeeding kings. This new king that arose in Egypt did not know Joseph. He did not know, or by implication, he did not care to know or had no regard for what God had done to see Egypt through years of famine by the hand of Joseph, thereby preserving the kingdom and people of Egypt in years past. Generally, what we have now is a product in some form or fashion of what came before us. It's important to know history because all history belongs to God. It is his story. And it is important to honor what God has done in the past that has made possible what we enjoy in the present. In the same way though, it is important that what we do in this present is done to prepare for those who will come after us, for those that will succeed us. We must steward our past well by stewarding our future well. Southside, how are we doing in stewarding our future? Do we have a succession plan? How will the things we do now translate into future generations? It is doubtful that the future south side will pray if we do not pray. The future south side will likely not give if we do not give. The future south side will likely not serve if we do not serve. The future south side will likely not believe God if we don't believe God. The future south side won't obey if we don't obey. The future south side won't make disciples if we do not make disciples. Now God can always intervene and work a miracle. There's always exceptions available with God. But generally speaking, who we are now is a product of who came before us and who we will be is a product of who we are now because of successions. God sees successions, successions of families and successions of kings. Are we stewarding our future in a way that generations after us will know the God that sees them? This new king did not know Joseph. He did not know what God had done. And out of fear, not of God, but of the people of Israel, he charted a different course and caused God's people to suffer. God sees successions, but secondly, God sees sufferings. Listen as I read verses nine through 14 again. All the words, you might underline them or highlight them in some way. Listen for all the words that relate to the suffering that was brought on the people of Israel. Verse nine, he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad 
and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. The new king of Egypt looks out at the people of Israel and sees them, verse nine, as too many and too mighty for us. People who don't know God look at how God has blessed others, and rather than praising God for his favor and provision upon them, they tend to persecute and oppress those whom God has blessed because they're intimidated sometimes jealous, envious, even fearful. This was the story of Egypt's new king, and he did this in his own heart first before God ever acted to harden his heart. From Israel's point of view, the suffering was not pleasant. It was grievous, hard, terrible. When we suffer, we might believe God doesn't know what's going on here. God knows. God sees sufferings. God saw Israel's sufferings, but right now, God is not intervening to stop it. We might ask, if God sees our sufferings, why isn't God doing anything about it? But he is, just in his time. This is what God promised would happen when he spoke with Abraham. Genesis 15 again, the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Their affliction would lead to their prosperity. Suffering would lead to their salvation. We can endure sufferings, church, when we have faith that God sees them, that nothing is happening without God's sovereign oversight and knowledge. This is what Joseph had learned in Genesis chapter 50, just one chapter earlier, when he said to his brothers who had sold him into slavery, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We must often pass through grief on our way to glory. God sees successions. God sees sufferings. Thirdly, God sees sacrifices. The word sacrifice can mean many things, but here I use it as speaking of an act of giving up something that is valued for the sake of something else regarded as more important or worthy. In verse 15, the story turns to the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah. These women assisted the Hebrew women as they gave birth. These women contributed to the explosive growth of Israel's people or so the king thought. Look with me at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, 
When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Church, God sees sacrifices when refusing to obey ungodly commands. Notice the language of verse 17. The midwives did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. The Hebrew midwives, in fear of God, disobeyed the king of Egypt. That took courage. Often such courage to disobey a civil authority results in personal sacrifice as a result. But these midwives believed God was worth whatever sacrifice may come. And the king of Egypt was not God. So the king's command was an ungodly command and these midwives saw something by faith that the king did not. The explosive growth of Israel's population was not a result of births, but of God fulfilling his promise to Abraham. And so the midwives would not stand in the way of Almighty God. There are times people of faith must disobey worldly authorities. It shouldn't be over meaningless things. We aren't in jeopardy of God's judgment if we wear a mask on our face, for example. But when the commandments of men are so taught as doctrine and conflict with God's revealed will, we must disobey men and obey God. When the expectations of men contradict the expectations of God, we must disobey men and obey God. The apostle wrote in Galatians 1.10, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Peter and the apostles answered in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. Hear the words of Esther, Esther 4.16, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. The midwives found themselves in such a situation where they were willing to sacrifice whatever was necessary and disobeyed because they feared God. And notice with me, church, that no command of God is referenced to these midwives telling them to do this. They just fear God. The fear of God is powerful. The reverence of God is powerful. The awareness we have of who God is is powerful. It's one thing to obey God's explicit commands, but let me ask us, do we delight in God out of a healthy fear of God? God sees sacrifices when refusing to obey ungodly commands. God sees sacrifices when refusing to yield when challenged about them. Look at verse 18 and 19. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. 
The midwives, again, display courage, willing to sacrifice by not backing down when challenged on their fear of God. They could have caved and yielded to the king's command, but instead they stood firm and answered with resolve, deceiving the king out of fear of God, just as they had disobeyed him out of that same fear of God. The midwives did not know that God would bless them for this. The text does not reveal that God had appeared to them and told them to do this and promised them a good outcome if they did. They weren't in this for the blessing. They just feared God and that was enough. Are we motivated to obey God so that we might receive some blessing from him or are we motivated to obey God because church, we just fear him. We have a reverence for him, his holiness, his uniqueness, his power and glory. Hebrews tells us of faithful men and women who did not receive what was promised in this life, but still had faith and feared God. Hebrews eleven thirteen says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. After the stand of these midwives willing to sacrifice, God does indeed bless them. Verse 21 says that because the midwives feared God, not because of what they did, not because of what they said, but because they feared God, he gave them families. God sees successions, God sees sufferings, God sees sacrifices, and lastly, God sees stubbornness. Look at verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Pharaoh, as he is now called again, is stubborn, but not with the sanctified stubbornness of the midwives who refused to yield out of fear of God, but with a sinful stubbornness. He refuses to give up. Now, instead of telling the midwives to kill the male babies, he tries to go for the strength in numbers approach and he goes straight to the people. He tells his people to do this, to cast them, the Hebrew male babies, into the Nile. The progression of Pharaoh's sin is evident. It's worth taking notice of. We're gonna come back to this later in Exodus. The progression of Pharaoh's sin, and it shows how sin does indeed progress. It grows. Pharaoh first does not know Joseph. Obviously, he doesn't care to know what happened. He's ignorant, willfully so. He then acts by what he sees in fear, not by faith. He oppresses God's people attempts to suppress God's people and resolves all the more to proceed in stubbornness, unyielding to accomplish his own evil desires by any means necessary. But in all of this, God is preparing the way for a savior. And this brings us now to the Christ conclusion we can't see it yet, but God is preparing the way for Moses to be born and to be preserved alive so that God might use Moses to deliver his people out of Egypt, out of their affliction, 
out of the grip of evil Pharaoh. There's one greater than Moses, Jesus, whom God is also preparing for at this same time, so that all of God's people, both Jews and Gentiles, might be saved, not from Egypt, but from sin and death. God not only sees successions, God knows successions, for he sent his only son into the world that the world might be saved through him. God knows sufferings, for his son would suffer at the hands of sinful men. God knows sacrifices, for his son would sacrifice his own life in exchange for sinners on the cross. And God knows stubbornness, for having sent his son who gave his life for our sin, who was buried and raised to glorious life, There are still many who refuse at this hour to believe and fear him and submit to him as Lord of all. Jesus makes Exodus our story. For all who receive Christ and his work of redemption, we are joined with the people of Israel in the story and salvation of God. For all who reject Christ, We join with Pharaoh and the Egyptians who become enemies, not of Israel, but enemies of God. Jesus makes Exodus our story and as such demands of us an answer to the question emerging from chapter one, who is God? Who is my God? Who is our God? What will we say? Thank you again for listening to this message. I pray that God would accomplish his purpose in you through the preaching, hearing, receiving, and believing of his word. If you wish to share any comments or questions about the message you have heard, please call Southside at 256-353-8814 or visit us on the web at southsidebaptist.net. Also, make sure to subscribe or follow this podcast to receive a new message each week.